Well, both sides of that equation are true, aren't they? Our sins, they are many. Anybody want to dispute that this morning? <laughs> no doubt about that. Aren't you glad that's not the end of the story? Yeah, where sin abounded, Paul said, um, grace did much more abound. So our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Thank you, worship team, for a very, very meaningful time of, uh, of worship this morning. If I asked you to list the most admirable characters in the Old Testament, um, who would you name? Uh, many candidates for sure, but I don't think it'd be long for many of us until we mentioned a man named Boaz, whose story is told in the little book of Ruth. That's where we learn about the important biblical theme of someone being a, a kinsman redeemer. You may remember that the story unfolds in the days when the judges governed, summarized in, in Judges 21, 25. And guys, my clicker's not clicking. <laughs> there we go. There we go. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, it was in that setting that a woman named Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons leave Bethlehem in the land of Judah to sojourn in the land of Moab because of a severe famine. And while they were there, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. Her two sons marry Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth, and then the two sons pass away, and neither of the wives had conceived children. Then they hear that the famine had subsided back in Bethlehem, and they choose to go back to where Naomi is from. But at some point in that journey, Naomi sits down with her daughters-in-law and she says, you ought to go back to Moab and be with your people and most importantly, and be with, with your gods. Ruth 1.9 says, may the Lord grant that you would find rest. Naomi, the mother-in-law says, each in the house of her husband. And what's curious and, and maybe even scandalous about that is that Naomi admits that by their doing so, they would be returning to their own gods, which apparently doesn't matter much to Naomi because after one of the daughters-in-law takes her up on the offer, Naomi tries to persuade Ruth to do the same thing. She says in what may be the most important verse in Ruth chapter 1, "'Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and, and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law.'" See your hopes in finding a man, regardless of what he believes, apparently, regardless of who his God is, about now any man will do. She was functioning as an individual like Israel was functioning as a nation. That, that's the clear point in all of this. Everybody is just doing that which is right in their own eyes. And in an amazing contrast to that lack of faithfulness, this young Moabite woman, you would have expected the Jewish mother-in-law to be the mature one, spiritually speaking, but it was the Moabitess who says this, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And what else? Your God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, your God will be my God, Ruth believed the God of Israel is capable of being faithful to me, and so I'm going to choose to be, to be faithful to him. Well, unfortunately, Naomi chose the path of bitterness. That is a choice, you know. And so when they get to Bethlehem, the women of the city say, hey, aren't you Naomi? Naomi. 
You used to live here. Aren't you Naomi? It's amazing what she said. Don't call me that anymore. Call me Mara, the Hebrew word for bitter. That's my name. That's my identity. And I have a reason why. And this statement, and I realize this may be a tender place for some listening to this message, but the truth of the matter is bitterness is a choice, and bitterness will cause you to twist facts. Bitterness will make a liar out of us every time. I went out full, she said. It was a famine. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, though standing right next to her is her dear daughter-in-law. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So many lessons right there. But in the next chapter, Ruth asks permission, amazingly, since it was the time of the barley harvest to go glean in the fields in accordance with the provisions in the Old Testament for people who were poor. And she just so happens, that's actually the way the writer says it, teasing us, it just so happens that she came to the field of a man named Boaz, who was a relative of her deceased father-in-law, and therefore his sons, and therefore Ruth's husband, and I realize in our culture, we might say, well, that's convenient. Maybe a, a relative will show Ruth preferential treatment and give her a job. No, no, in that culture. And remember, when we study the Bible, we always interpret it first in light of its original context and setting. The fact that Boaz was a near relative would have set off all sorts of alarm bells, in this case, in a very, very joyful sense. Because the Old Testament had specific provisions for people in Ruth and Naomi's position. In two special senses for our consideration this morning. The first was the law of the Goel, or the, the kinsman redeemer, taught in places like Leviticus 25.25. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor that he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back. Don't miss those words. And to buy back what his relative has sold. If you want to read more about that, the subsequent verses discuss it more fully. And you can also study about it in Deuteronomy chapter 27 if you would like to. So there was the, the law of the Goel or the kinsman redeemer. But, but secondly, there was the issue of leveret marriage. Explained in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and following. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife, picture this, shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then, just picture this, his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal was removed. 
and got a good spitting in his face, apparently. And I realize we might hear all that and say, yuck, yuck, which is probably not the best response to God's provision in Scripture for his people. So you might want to reel that yuck back in, okay, if you got one of those going on. But, but I do realize it's hard for us in our culture to understand what a difficult position Naomi and Ruth were in because most of us have not experienced a famine. Could I get a mm-hmm on that? How's your refrigerator looking right now? And most of us have not experienced a famine or we've certainly not experienced the possibility that our land would have to be sold in our family's name and therefore potential for livelihood would be extinguished. These two women are in dire straits. But, but in chapter 2, as the mother-in-law, Naomi, watches God begin to bless them through Boaz's character and kindness, and this is a very important point of this book, her bitterness begins to melt. So even if you find yourself in a position of bitterness this morning, part of the message of the book of Ruth is you don't have to remain in that condition forever And you find Naomi as she watches Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, and the way he treats Ruth and the way God orchestrates all of it, her trust in God's Word in ways increases. And you say, how how do you know that? Well, just keep reading the book. Because in chapter 3, she launches an outrageous plan. But, 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 but somebody has to make the next move. Boaz probably won't, won't because he's so much older than Ruth. So Naomi encourages Ruth to go down to the threshing floor at night where Boaz will undoubtedly be sleeping and ask him to function as their, and I do mean their, kinsman redeemer. And what happens next is amazing. It shows that Boaz has been thinking about this too because he tells Ruth, it is true, I am a near relative, but there's actually a closer relative. And you read the story, say, no, I don't want to hear about that guy. Can we forget about that guy? And the answer is no, which demonstrates Boaz, this kinsman redeemer's impeccable character. It also shows how far we've come in the story because it was in chapter 1 with Naomi, any old God will do. But now we've at a place where with Boaz, we have to be sure we're following God's Word carefully and precisely. Well, thankfully, that part of the story gets put to rest pretty quickly, doesn't it? Because Boaz goes the very next day, I mean the very next day, to the city gate, and he assembles the elders, and and he speaks to the closest relative who eventually refuses The closest relative says, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself, Boaz, if you want to. You may have my right of redemption. I can't redeem it. And what word would you use to describe that guy? That guy needs a sandal upside the head, doesn't he? And a good spitting on as well. But but then, then you have these heroic words. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malion, the the, the sons, 
Moreover, I've acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malian, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. And you're left cheering at this scene. You're left screaming, just like when Purdue beats IU. I mean, I'm talking about that. Speaking of a slap down with somebody's sandal, I mean, that's... And you think at that point in the book, you think, could there ever be a better redeemer than this? Could there ever be a a kinder redeemer than this? Could there ever be a more gracious redeemer than this? And what is the answer to all of those questions? Well, yes, yes, there could. He's the one to whom this entire story is pointing, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for people like you and me, who in a spiritual sense were far more hungry and impoverished and enslaved than Ruth and Naomi were, what we potentially have in the person and work of our Savior is the perfect kinsman redeemer. With that in mind, I want to invite you to open your Bible this morning now to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, that's on page 150 of the, the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. So Ephesians chapter 1 or page 150 of the back section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. Our church's theme this year is building on our heritage because we are this month, we're right on top of our church's 60th anniversary. And God in His grace has given us a wonderful heritage. And so the question that we're considering this year is what does it look like to build on that heritage wisely and well? That's what God has called us to in our day, in our generation, to to build on the heritage that He's given us. So so what does it look like practically for us to to do that wisely and to do it well? In these early months of 2024, we're working our way slowly and methodically through Ephesians chapter 1, remembering our identity as one in Christ. And I would like us to read the, the first 14 verses of this marvelous, marvelous chapter. But, but look especially, it actually comes up twice in this text, look especially for what Paul tells us this morning about Jesus being our Redeemer. So Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and to our faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the, the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us. And And notice this last part of verse 6 because it's going to come into our discussion this morning. In the beloved, if you know Christ, that's what you're in. You're you're in the, the beloved. Now, one of our key verses for this morning, in Him, notice that little phrase, in Him we have what? We have redemption through His blood, the the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the, the riches of His grace which He lavished on us 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things. Did you notice that? We sang about that from a different passage this morning, but it comes back here. All things after the counsel of his will. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And here's where redemption comes back into the discussion. Who was given as a a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. We're talking this morning about how you're redeemed. And with the time we have remaining, let's think about four responses to Jesus being willing to be your kinsman, redeemer. First of all, acknowledge man's need of redemption. What we said about the importance of considering the Bible's original historical context and reference to the book of Ruth, that's equally important when thinking about Paul's use of the word redemption here in the book of Ephesians. There's two primary Greek words translated redeem or redemption in the New Testament. They're both beautiful words, and they're both very, very important for our consideration this morning. One of them is agorazo. That's from agora, marketplace, referred to buying or purchasing something in the market. So in that case, a price has to be paid. So, for example, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us. A price had to be paid. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The emphasis there is on the the, the price that had to be paid, in this case, uh, to redeem us from the curse of the law. And we'll say more about that a little later on. And frankly, if that's all that redemption was, somebody was willing to pay the price for you. That would be marvelous, but in the Scripture, it's even stronger because there's also the word latruo, which means to release from captivity, paying a ransom in order to release a person from bondage, especially that of slavery. John MacArthur goes on to explain that in his commentary. He says, during New Testament times, the Roman Empire had as many as six million slaves, and the, the buying and selling of them was a major business. If a person wanted to free a loved one or friend who was a slave, think about that. He he would buy that slave for himself and then grant him freedom, testifying to the deliverance by a a written certificate. Latruo was used to designate the freeing of a slave in that way. That is precisely the idea carried in the New Testament use of the term. Think about it. To represent Christ's atoning sacrifice on the cross, He paid the redemption price to buy for himself fallen mankind and to set them free from their sin. That, however, is one of the major challenges of the day and age in which we live. So, see, only a person convinced of his or her enslavement, were you? Only a person convinced of his or her enslavement would be motivated to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in order to secure this marvelous and miraculous redemption. And that was Paul's point in Romans chapter 3 in what may be, and many would consider this to be the very heart of the gospel. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. We've talked about that. 
right? Our sins, they are what? Yeah, we sang it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, declared righteous as a gift by His grace through the, here it is, the redemption. A price was paid, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate my righteousness. Did I read that right? No, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just, a price was paid. He would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And friend, the question to each one of us on that point is rather simple and straightforward. Have you acknowledged and and do you acknowledge man's need of redemption? Well, I'm happy to tell you that our founders clearly did. It's pretty remarkable, I think, that within two years of the launch of this church, our forebearers were dedicating their first permanent facility. And so the church was started in 1964 Um, This building was being constructed in 1966, and the actual formal dedication service for our first permanent building was on in January of 1967, and so they had a formal dedication service, which included a, a portion of the service that they termed an act of dedication. That's what it was called, and so the, the pastor would read... Um, a series of words to the congregation, and then the congregation would respond back in unison. And here's part of what they said on that day um, all those years ago. The pastor started by saying, to the purpose of maintaining worship in accordance with our belief in a verbally inspired and hence infallible Bible. Aren't you glad for that? They they made it clear that, that their source of truth was the Word of God, and they were taking a stand. And in that day... There were um, theological arguments swirling on that particular point. Is the Bible really inspired? And theological liberalism in this town was alive and well saying it wasn't. And a dear group of people in this town stood up and said, we respectfully disagree. And that congregation made it very, very clear in the shadow of Purdue University sometimes good in basketball, not very good in theology, at least the, the attitudes that would be um, permeating that place. Oftentimes, this congregation said, we dedicate this church to that truth. And then the pastor said to the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news of the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ again in that day the day of the social gospel, the day of growing theological liberalism, the day when many were doubting um, the the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, were doubting the miraculous life of Jesus Christ, were certainly doubting the substitutionary death of Christ. And why? Because that offended modern man's sensibilities. Why would I need to be redeemed? And this church made it very, very clear to the preaching of the gospel, which is the good news of the what? The substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why did they say that? Because they said, we believe that mankind must be redeemed. And then there was an entire church family that had to decide, we're going to sit there silent or not? 
I wish we had the tape because I'm pretty sure it was or not. Can you imagine that group of believers ringing out, we're dedicating this church to that. And then the pastor went on to say to the proclamation of this same gospel, not just here in Lafayette, but to the uttermost part of the earth, we want, we dedicate this church. Don't you love that? Not a bunch of slick advertising. Not a lot of watered-down religious sentiments that might attract people and where they could build a crowd, but something that had the ability to neither offend nor convert anyone. No, they were very, very clear, very, very clear in their acknowledgement of man's need of redemption, along with the marvelous news that a kinsman redeemer had come. We're embarking on our 40th biblical counseling training conference this week. That's, that is amazing. And one of our doctrinal distinctives is that mankind's greatest need is his separation from a holy God because of our sin. That's not to suggest that every person's problem is the direct result of their individual sin or that there's not the existence of innocent suffering in this world, but none of us are passive victims. I hope you believe that. None of us are passive victims. We are active worshipers. And our response to both sinning and suffering should be to run to whom? To run to our Redeemer. To run to our Redeemer in repentance and faith. And so many of the world systems want to place responsibility everywhere else. And so those counselors end up becoming like those described in Hebrews 10 priests standing daily, ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. And the sad reality is a fair amount of that is done under the heading of Christian and sometimes now even biblical counseling. And friend, I just want to say to all of us this morning, beware of any counseling system that fails to quickly and comprehensively acknowledge man's need of redemption. Because our enslavement was real and undeniable. So acknowledge the need and then next, marvel at the extent of your redemption. If you're willing to repent and to turn around, to go from pride and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency and truly acknowledge, I desperately needed redemption. I believe a price had to be paid for me. What do we find as the proposed solution It's a beautiful thing. It's a personal relationship with a Redeemer who loves you. This may be one of the reasons the book of Ruth is in the Bible, to help us personalize the transaction of biblical redemption. Some of you are old enough to remember um, the old Bible teacher, J. Vernon McGee. You remember him on the radio, J. Vernon McGee? Anybody old enough to remember that? Some of you, you can close your eyes and hear his voice because he had a very, very distinctive um, voice, a very distinctive way of teaching the Word of God. He wrote a book on the book of Ruth. I I love the title that he selected. He called it The the Romance of Redemption. I, I just want to ask you to just pause and think about the importance of that phrase, the the romance of redemption. The book's description says it like this. The story of Ruth, the Gentile made from Moab, is a a powerful and passionate portrayal of pure love. The devoted love of Ruth for her Hebrew mother-in-law, Naomi, 
the romantic love between Ruth and Boaz, and the, the redemptive love of God exactly. That's why I pointed out when we were reading this morning that before verse 7, which talks about our redemption, right at the end of verse 6 in Ephesians 1, we're referred to as the, the beloved. Paul said the same thing to the Romans, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, so what I'm trying to point out here is we're not talking about some sort of an impersonal payment or transaction made by somebody who barely knows or cares about you. See, what Boaz was to Ruth, God is to you. That's the nature of the person who purchased your redemption. When I became a Christian in my senior year of high school, my my church, not long after that, encouraged me to consider becoming a pastor. And many of you know the challenge was my father was not a believer in Jesus Christ. He was not in favor of that idea. I was his only son. I was supposed to be an accountant. I was supposed to go to Northwestern. I was supposed to make tons of money. That's the way it was. And I realize we have some accountants here today. I'm not sure that's the way the plan works. Well, that's the way it was supposed to work for me. My dad was not, my dad was not happy about what was happening in my senior year at all. And so I had to figure out, now, how in the world am I going to pay for my first year of Bible college now? And I was working at a health club at the time, making a very, very small hourly wage. And if you just calculated, if I saved every last cent I made that summer, it still was not going to be enough to pay for my, my first year of Bible college. And so one day I'm at work at the health club, and I get a call from a friend of mine, and he offers me a job building in-ground swimming pools, but, but the catch was I had to start the very next day. And so I went to my boss at the health club, and I said, look, here, here's the thing. And, and, and I really loved the way my boss at the health club responded. He said, well, hey, that's too good to pass up. Why don't you go try it, and if it doesn't work out, we'll hold a place for you here, and you can come back. Again, very, very gracious on his part to do that. So I went to work for the pool company. It was owned by an elderly Jewish man, and we had some time in his car riding his Cadillac to the, the first job, and um, he wanted to know my story, and I explained to him that I was uh, working and trying to get this job so that I could save enough money to pay my way through Bible college because I believe God wanted me to be a pastor. And so by the end of that first week, I had another meeting with him, and he said, listen, here's the thing. Um, you can work as many hours as you want this summer, and I'll pay you $5 an hour. It wasn't a great wage, but in those days, $5 an hour went a lot further than it does today. But then he said to me, if, you, if you'll work for me the entire summer, I'll give you a bonus of $1,000 to help you pay for Bible college next year. Now, I can tell you right now, $1,000 back then, that was an awful lot of money And the more I got to know him, the more amazed I was. Why'd he do that? Well, he just chose to love me. That's what it was. God brought a person right out of the blue who chose to love me in an incredible way. Friend, I'm encouraging you this morning, and this is why we're going so slowly through Ephesians chapter 1. So these words, like the one this morning, redemption, you remember Fannie Mae meltaways? Anybody here remember those? I think they actually make them still. 
haven't had one in a long time. But, but anyway, I, I don't know. But, but, but you remember those? We, we used to get them at Christmas time. And um, uh, uh, Fanny, th- that's what these terms are like in Ephesians chapter 1, and that's what we're wanting these Sundays to be like. Put, put the word redemption, let's not rush, put the word redemption in your mouth and just slowly think about what that means. What Boaz was to Ruth, God is to you. And of course, in many ways, that's just the beginning of the story because Paul goes on to explain it's a payment that's much more precious than, than gold. That's where even the story of the, the pool business, it falls so short because the centerpiece of our verse in Ephesians 1, in him we have redemption through his blood. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. We're not talking about things like gold or, or silver from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Aren't you glad that's a central part of the heritage on which we have the privilege to build? As far as I know, practically every month for the last 60 years, our church has paused and celebrated the Lord's table together. Why? Because there would be few things to us more precious than the, the blood of Christ. We believe with the writer of Hebrews, all things are cleansed with blood. A price had to be paid, and without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And that's why our church has historically sung songs like, Redeemed, How I Love to Proclaim It. Do we still love it? Are we still willing in this modern age to proclaim it? I had to be redeemed. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. My, my sins, they are many. What did we sing this morning? His mercy's more. His child and, and forever I am. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. No language my rapture can tell. I know that the light of His presence with me doth continually dwell. I think of my blessed Redeemer. Do you? Do you? I think of my blessed Redeemer. I think of Him all the day long. I sing. For I can't be silent. That's why when I'm driving down to work and I'm in the car by myself and you might say, somebody looks at me and says, who's he talking to? Who's she talking to? The answer is we're singing, right? We may not be singing good, but we're singing loud. And the only one who hears us, he loves us enough to put up with our voice. We're singing, right? I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the the theme of my song, I know I shall see in his beauty the king in whose law I delight, who, who lovingly guardeth my footsteps and, and giveth me songs in the night, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, redeemed, redeemed, his child, and forever I am. So acknowledge man's need and, and marvel at the extent, and then rejoice in the effects of your redemption. You know, the title we selected for this first chapter is Remembering Our Identity as One in Christ, and that's a very important way of thinking about this book, how the first three chapters focus on the gospel indicatives, so who we are in Christ. And then the the last three chapters transition to the gospel imperatives, how we're to live for Christ. And remembering that sequence is so very, very important. And our verse this morning is one of the reasons we chose this title. It's the the in him. That little phrase is so very, very powerful. And I just want to pause and 
and ask every person who's going to hear this message this morning, do you know that you know that you know that you're on your way to heaven? Has there been a definite time in your life where you acknowledge your need of redemption? And, and, and if you've not, and I realize if you just grew up in this culture, you might say, well, I, I just thought I saved myself. I, I thought I was good enough to earn heaven on my old friend. As soon as you begin contemplating the holiness of God and as soon as we're honest, even for a moment, about the, the nature of our own heart, we know that sin has separated us from a holy God. And we know the price is far too large for us to pay with our puny little works. Friends, we, we need a Savior. We need a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus Christ has offered to be that person for you. And if you've never trusted him as Savior and Lord before, I want to encourage you to do that right now on a beautiful Sunday morning. And there's no magical formula, but something like, Father, I know that I'm a sinner. And I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my redeemer. I want his blood to cover my sin. I need righteousness that only comes from him. And, you know, part of what's kept our church family united all of these years, 60 years, in spite of all of our differences. And we got a lot of them. You know that? In fact, some of you, when I cheered the fact that Purdue, they, they walloped IU really good last night. You know that? Did I mention that already? And let's face it, we better enjoy it while we got it, right? <laughs> Zach Eady does not have 40 years of eligibility. And so, um, right, right, we better enjoy it while we got it. But there's a few people here who, who kind of under their breath weren't real happy with me. Why? Because you like IU. So we got, we got some differences. In fact, we've got some differences more significant than, than that. But, but what has united us all these years is that we share a common spiritual identity of being in Christ. So if you went around this room this morning and asked person after person after person, tell me the most important thing about you, the answer wouldn't be, well, I'm German or I have, I have red hair, or I, I like the Cubs, or let me show you some pictures of my grandkids. No, the answer would be I, I'm, I'm in Christ. That's the most important thing about me. I'm in Christ. That's the central aspect of my identity. I'm in Christ. Why? Because I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And think about the effects and how these effects have guided us practically over the last 60 years. That means we've been freed from sin's power. And Paul reminded the Romans, having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And that's why we wrestle in our minds. Consider yourselves. I've been redeemed. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. A price had to be paid. We had to be freed before that could be a possibility. And I realize you might say, well, Pastor Virus, I got a long way to go. Yeah, I've got a long way to go, too. But think about how far you've come. You got yourself up this morning on the Lord's day, and you got yourself to the Lord's house. What's that? That's evidence of your redemption. That, by the way, is what motivated our church to launch a biblical counseling center for this community 48 years ago. It's not, not because we're convinced about our wisdom or we're enamored with the world's latest philosophies and theories. No, it's because we truly believe in the power of Jesus Christ's redemptive work. 
our redemption transferred us from the world system. So we read in places like Colossians 1.13, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and He transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have what? That, that's part of our redemption. Or again, in Galatians 1, same idea. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of God our Father. And many of us would say, this world's not my home. I don't embrace the world's values or philosophies or core ideologies anymore. Why? We've been redeemed. We've been rescued from all of that. And that frees us up to invest our lives in the kingdom of God. You drive into this parking lot, I hope you do it every time you come, and you look at these buildings going up. And you look at the, the progress that's taking place. What is that, humanly speaking? What is that, humanly speaking? Well, those are people who have been redeemed, serving their God together. We've been released from guilt and shame. I mentioned this verse earlier. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. That's why we do so much community-based outreach ministry around here, because we want all of our friends and our neighbors to be able to experience that same kind of freedom. No more guilt and shame. Aren't you glad for that? No more guilt and shame because of the powerful blood of Christ and His marvelous redemptive work. We're protected from legalistic demands. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And I'm not saying we haven't had our share of legalism around here over the last 60 years. Let's just face that. It's an easy trap to fall into. We're trying to grow. We're trying to do right. But we also try to avoid it if at all possible. A lot of these buildings we're building right now are for our school. When we started our school 27 years ago or whenever it was, we made a conscious decision. What we're not going to do is tear down other forms of education in this town in order to build ourselves up. And we're certainly not going to set up sending your child to a Christian school as some sort of a, a legalistic test of one's spirituality. We said that the Bible doesn't affirm only one way to educate a child, and every parent in this church and community is going to have to freely decide what they believe God wants them to do. And so if they come here, it's going to be a choice, but it's not going to be a legalistic test. And I'm glad these buildings are going up and good things are happening at our school, but not because we had to manipulate people legalistically in order to make a choice that they really didn't believe God wanted them to make. That's because of the blood of Christ. We're delivered from the fear of death. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That's the incarnation of Christ. That, that, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those. We've been redeemed from that. Might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I'm just starting my 37th year here, which is a, a testimony of the grace of God and the patience of this church family. Uh, I believe the, the special crown our church members will receive for having to endure me all these years, it will be sizable. I have no doubt about that for sure. But I, I do believe in the value of long-term ministries. 
But I'll tell you, something they did not warn us about in seminary was if you stay at the same church for a long time, you'll end up burying a lot of your friends. And I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've stood right here um, by one of the caskets of a, a member of this church during their funeral and, and thought these words, Thank you, Lord, for redemption. Thank you, Lord, for redemption. That, that person's body, that, that person's soul, it's been purchased. It's been bought by the, the blood of the Lamb. And so I'm sorrowing just like the family is sorrowing and like their, their friends are sorrowing, but not as those who have no hope. Why? Because Jesus' redemptive blood is powerful enough to deliver us from that kind of fear of death. See, what sweet Boaz did for Ruth, our sweet Savior has done for us. So acknowledge man's need and marvel at the extent and rejoice in the effects. And lastly, embrace the purpose of your redemption. I, my, my job this morning was to touch on two verses this morning. I only got through one, really. But just so I'm not fired, let, let me just mention this last one, Ephesians 1.14, who's given us as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of what? Now, here, here's the point of God's own possession. You know, our church has had five senior pastors over our 60-year history, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. But this was never Pastor Reed's church. It was never Pastor Lockwood's church. It was never Pastor Vila's church. It was never Pastor Good's church, and it's certainly never been my church. It's always been Jesus's church. Why? Why? Well, it's because he purchased it. He purchased it with his own blood. And that's what motivates our obedience and empowers our service. Paul told Titus, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Friends, what sweet Boaz was to Ruth, our sweet Savior is to us, our wonderful Redeemer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, I do thank you for the, the wonderful book of Ephesians. And Lord, thank you for this explanation, this reminder of Jesus being our Redeemer. And Father, that, that kind of love, um, it's, it's amazing to us. Um, it's overwhelming to us when we think about it. That, that Jesus' blood, it, it paid the price. It, it, it bought us back. It, it freed us. And so, Father, I pray that our love for him would increase, and I pray that our desire to live for him would grow, in part because we've been redeemed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.